2020 was a year unlike any other in the 40-year history of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic poses geopolitical threats to progress in the field and has impacted many of the systems in place meant to combat HIV. As the COVID pandemic continues into 2021, unprecedented disruptions, social and economic instability, fear of accessing health facilities, and impacts on current HIV programs force the global health community to reassess how to adapt, protect, and sustain progress. In this podcast, we will speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress towards meeting HIV targets under this new COVID reality and the future of health security in low- and middle-income countries. I'm Catherine Bliss, and this is AIDS 2021. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of AIDS 2021, a podcast of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Agnes Ronan, head of programs at PATA, Pediatric Adolescent Treatment Africa, based in Cape Town, South Africa. At PATA, Agnes oversees the organization's work to gather information and support initiatives for children and adolescents living with HIV. She brings experience with managing clinical trials and a specialization around maternal and reproductive health to her work. We're here today to talk about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on programs to support children living with HIV, along with their families and caregivers throughout the Africa region. Agnes, welcome to AIDS 2021. Thank you, Catherine. So even before COVID-19, it was clear that the world was not on track to meet some of the global goals with respect to preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV and initiating children and sustaining them on antiretroviral therapies. So I wanted to start by asking you to describe Pata's work and share how, you know, well before the pandemic, you and your colleagues saw prospects for moving things forward for children and adolescents living with HIV in the region. Thanks for that, Catherine, and thanks for the kind introduction. So, yes, let me start by describing the work that Patrick does, and then that will feed into what we were trying to do to address the epidemic amongst children and adolescents. So Patrick is an action network of health providers and health facilities across sub-Saharan Africa, working to improve quality of pediatric and adolescent HIV prevention, treatment, care, and support. Together with strategic partners in the region, our aim is to prioritize children in HIV response by aiming to close the service delivery and treatment gaps among children and to effect positive change in HIV pediatric and adolescent policy and practice, as well as direct capacity building for effective service delivery. One unique opportunity that PATA offers our network of health providers are platforms for peer-to-peer exchange at local or regional level. Such platforms mainly focus on providing capacity building and technical support in several targeted projects that we may be supporting at any given time and beyond. They're not just limited to our projects. These platforms are in the form of learning forums and summits for health providers from the region. 
And this provided much needed platform for frontline health providers who are often excluded from international meetings, national forums, conferences, and other such important dialogues. And for us, our summits provide this accessible learning and sharing space for our network members. So with that background, in terms of practice prospects, so before, even before COVID, we and I think the rest of the world knew that nearly half of the children needing treatment were not accessing treatment. And we also knew that children and adolescents compared to adult uh, populations were not faring well. They were struggling with treatment and adherence, retention in care, and we're experiencing lower levels of viral suppression compared to adults. And all of this, of course, contributed to key global targets set for children and adolescents not being met. And now with the additional impacts of COVID, challenges are intensified and some of the progress and gains made previously stand to be lost and even reversed further. So that's where we are. And we knew that we were behind before COVID came and COVID really hasn't helped. So, yeah, I mean, even before the pandemic, those targets weren't going to be met and there was considerable discussion around, you know, how to really galvanize a renewed or how to reignite a focus on on children, you know, within some of the global discussions. We know that as the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared the pandemic in, I guess, March of of 2020, countries started shifting resources to prepare for outbreak response. And some of that, you know, came from some of the multilateral organizations like Gavi and the Global Fund allowed countries to shift some of their health systems uh, support directly to, to outbreak response. And and in other cases, it was it was domestic resources, you know, really, really kind of being shifted to prepare for an outbreak. Health workers have, as you said, been on the front lines of this response and, you know, really working to maintain support for their, you know, kind of routine services that, that they're always providing, but, you know, also scaling up to address COVID. So, you know, I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about how the pandemic has affected your engagement with health workers and the communities that they serve. And what are the concerns that you're hearing from people working at the, the clinical and the community level, you know, about COVID and, and the, the services and what kind of support do they need to really be able to be there for the, the people they serve? Yeah. So thanks for that question, Catherine. So we actually, around May last year, three months into COVID and lockdown in most African countries, we actually conducted a survey to try and understand what the impact on our health providers. So we conducted a survey amongst our health providers in the region. And some of these, so what I'm going to speak to is what, what came from our health providers represented by the voice of our health providers. So as that's what's important because what they say is what matters, not what we see or say or think. So the main concerns we had from our health providers and others from the sector where the number one was the threat to the hard-earned gains made in the HIV response. This is as attention and resources were diverted away from HIV to fight COVID-19. Health providers had to take on additional tasks, providing COVID-19 triaging, screening, management. Clinics had to be decanted and they had to triage 
clients who came in, meaning that they had to restrict the number of uh, HIV patients that they could see attend to per day. And of course, as you can imagine, all these challenges meant service delivery platforms and ways of working had to be adapted very quickly if we were to adequately address both HIV and COVID, because no, not one was more important than the other. We needed to protect our communities from both. So the fear of those uh, of those gains that we've made in trying to shifting away from our business as usual and trying to act quickly and address, there was great fear that we're going to lose the gains that we uh, made prior to the pandemic. Number two, the knock-on effects on patient outcomes associated with these rapid service delivery shifts that I've just mentioned, and the delivery shifts included shifting HIV service delivery from facilities to communities, to decongest facilities. And one way of doing this was through differentiated delivery models, which you might have heard of, which is taking uh, services into communities and family-centered care and more convenient way of delivering services. And where they were implemented, in some cases, they worked really well, they were implemented well and they worked well, but in some cases, they were not always well-supported or did not have the right community support structures. So needless to say, all this had a negative knock-on effect on HIV case finding in the community, decreasing linkage to, to treatment, and poor ART initiation as well as retention in care. Because as you can imagine, shifting resources, service delivery into the facility, but not adequate resources supporting that service delivery. Of course, we ended up seeing all these challenges and the negative uh, knock-on effect on our patient outcomes. The third thing I'd like to speak about is that our health providers reported themselves reported uh, experiencing loss of fear and concerns in relation to their work, as well as their own safety and security, especially given their increased exposure to risk that they faced. They also faced tremendous mental health, strain and stress. I mean, you and I face stress, mental health to a certain degree and stress. So you can imagine on the front line already struggling to meet our service delivery targets. And now with the pandemic on top of that, so huge amounts of mental health, strain and stress as a result of that. And this time more than ever before reported among health providers. And then lastly, and sadly, I think one comment I need to make is that these concerns do not end here with the things that I've just listed here. I mean, these are short term, which hopefully we can address. We're thinking about, we're thinking about ways of addressing them. But for many children, the impacts that we've seen now, for many children and young people in Africa, the impacts are likely to have lifelong impacts. Uh, and posing a threat to social capital in our communities in decades to come. So we will see all this manifest as our children who are missing treatment, not being linked to care as they grow into adolescence and into being young people. So yeah, so the impacts are broader than we think and understand at the moment. So the, the pandemic has, has been a 15 to 18 month process that will you know, we hope be resolved in, in the medium term, at least, but it sounds like you're seeing these, these impacts both on caregivers and on children and families will be long lasting. 
yeah, I wanted to to come back to the, I guess it was the third point you made around the the stress and just the the real exhaustion of health workers, you know, seeing yeah. the hard won gains of their work yeah. really, you know, being diminished. And then at the same time, just having to contend with the provision of so many services and, and having to juggle so many things. And, you know, I just wanted to ask if you're seeing with this kind of burnout, people leaving the field and, and leaving the, I guess, the profession really, you know, just saying right now I, I need to step back and, and be with my family or do something else. Are you concerned that there will be a loss of really highly skilled personnel from this field in the long term as well? Well, what we've seen, Catherine, is more than loss of skills, but loss of lives amongst the health providers. I mean, like I say, you and I would have a choice. I might say, I'm going to leave this profession, I'm going to do something else. Whereas our health providers have no option. They have families to provide for. They have their communities. Most of most of our health providers are in what they do for altruistic reasons to serve their communities. And if they walk away, so what does that mean for them? So, I mean, attrition rate amongst health providers, we haven't, perhaps it's too early, but we haven't really seen much of that. But what we have seen is high levels of sickness, high levels of mental health, a health providers actually dying on the line of duty. So it's all those sort of hard impacts that we've seen, heartbreaking impacts that we've seen. But yeah, it will be interesting. We are just in the process of now doing our second survey just to try and understand a year on where are we, what are health providers struggling with, what have they settled with, what have they learned, what more support do they need? That's one question that would be interesting to ask and try and understand. And I know you'd also ask me about what kind of support we think that they will need. Maybe I'll speak very briefly to that. So health providers need now more than ever, but they've always needed training. They need the right equipment, which has always been a huge shortage in, in the region. And now even more so, they can't even get oxygen to treat patients with COVID. They have drug shortages for treating children with HIV. They haven't got the right equipment to, to do, for example, immediate testing and, and diagnosing and linking that child sitting in front of them to the care that they need. Children have to, send, to be sent either to other hospitals or they have to be tested and then come back, you know, I don't know, in two weeks' time to find out that they're HIV positive, then only then be treated then. So they need, they need to be trained, they need equipment, and they need practical support instructions, standard operating procedures, algorithms to assist things are changing, the new drugs. Amidst all of this that we're doing, the new drugs coming up on the market, they have to understand that as well. They have to be able to dispense drugs and initiate uh, HIV treatment drugs, change drugs where they're not working. And all of that requires training. And yet those are the things that are suffering while they're busy on the front line trying to balance delivering basic services as well as screening and managing COVID. And given all these fast-paced learning and adaptations that we've had during COVID-19, what we feel as PATA is we really need to keep providing those platforms for health providers, for them to facilitate sharing tools, the tools that I've just mentioned above, 
also for just sharing best practices because with these adaptations, different countries and even within the same countries, different regions are applying different adaptations and what works in one region doesn't work in another. So to be able to provide them with that platform where they can share lessons and take home and try and apply them in their own settings, I think would be most helpful for them. And of course, you know, underpinning all of this, I cannot speak enough about mental health, ensuring that their physical and mental well-being is taken off, care of is critical. And so, of course, in this context of lockdowns and quarantine and social distancing coming together to exchange and learn from others would potentially be a boost to, you know, just inspiration and, and really having those kinds of networks and connections but you know, also really offer that opportunity to exchange and, and compare notes and, and find out what works. You know, there's been a great deal of discussion during the pandemic within the HIV context, you know, the shift to multi-month dosing, something caregivers might have been more reluctant to do before, a greater uptake of self-testing, at least for, for some populations, and greater uptake of telehealth where, where it's been available, among other innovations. And of course, at the same time, we know that in some places, the testing platforms have been kind of diverted to or successfully used in conjunction for COVID-19 diagnostics. At the same time, of course, the pandemic has really reinforced the importance of strong primary health care services as a foundation for prevention, surveillance and treatment, you know, not just for COVID-19, but for really, you know, to the extent possible, sustaining those essential services uh, in the long term. But, you know, I just wanted to ask, you know, within this context, you know, to what extent have you seen opportunities for building new partnerships at the community or at the national levels or even within the, the region? And to what extent have you seen the potential for new ways of, of doing things during the crisis over the past year? Yeah, so firstly, maybe I'll speak to new ways of working and perhaps I'll speak to service delivery models. And yeah, you will have had differentiated service delivery models endless times, especially community-based that allow health providers to reach children and young people in their homes. When differentiated service delivery models were initially initiated, they were initiated with caution and there were all sorts of guidelines, strict guidelines in terms of how who can receive treatment in the community, who only comes to the facility every six months, who all the children were not included in that. All of that was done very cautiously. But with the pandemic, we've seen these models being expedited and to a large extent, very successfully. I know I talked earlier about, in some cases, yes, they implemented differentiated service mod models, but without the right structures in the community. But I think generally on the whole, they were implemented more successfully than we had imagined if we had just woken up one day and spoken about trying to roll out differentiated service models without adequate preparation. So um, there were many successes seen out of that. We've seen many examples of facilities shifting to multi-month dispensing, even for young children, which, like, as I said, prior to COVID was not standard. Many lessons have been learned along the way, some good, some bad. 
And some of the lessons we've learned with DSDs are that with community-based service delivery models, we've seen the importance of ensuring linkage to care using technologies, as you mentioned yourself, and other forms of connection, partnerships with other community-based organizations that work with children being quite, quite a critical one. We've also seen the importance of linkage officers and case managers to ensure new service delivery models stay connected, even if remotely, and case managers linked to directly to facilities, working with facilities, and instead of a mother bringing child to the facility, or you have case managers understanding what's happening in that home, supporting, and only refer to a facility when needed. And with these models as well, both WHO and UNICEF are emphasizing shifts from facility to, to community service delivery. What we do need to think about and to do more of is psychosocial support interventions, because our models so far have been focused mainly on testing, treating, drug, and psychosocial support has kind of been a second thought or an added on, or, but we now do need to really think about psychosocial interventions because it's not just about being on HIV treatment, it's all the other impacts that COVID brings upon families and their children. And with those psychosocial interventions, they need to be, we need to think about virtual platforms of de delivering those interventions and how practical is that. But, but we need to try, we need to think about them and we need to see, think about how we can deliver them. And yeah, generally we need to build on lessons that we've learned so far in trying to implement community-based services. And then in terms of partnerships, PATA set up an emergency relief fund at the outset of a oh, few months into COVID to support our facilities and their community-based partners. And from these partnerships, we saw a lot of great work come out. The partnerships demonstrated that clinic community, we called it clinic community collaboration. Uh, if you go into our website, we've got a whole course supporting health providers and their partners, how they can apply clinic community collaboration in a more systematic way. So we realized that it that methodology is really quite critical in filling gaps in the health system and that at, at local level, partnerships are most committed and most knowledgeable because they know their systems, they know what's in their communities, and they're both positioned to design and implement programs that have the greatest impact that we ever imagined, more than we imagined on vulnerable adolescents and young people. So we really need to focus on trying to strengthen those community delivery into situated within community systems, bringing partnerships together, not just the clinic, but other partnerships within the community that will that work with families. What the pro program also demonstrated was how health systems were prior to this, we're actually underutilizing the knowledge and the power of resource sharing of partnerships prior to COVID. And when we left these partnerships to their own devices, we gave them small amounts of money, we left them to their own devices. And through working in partnerships, 
planning and implementing together, monitoring together. They jointly came up with ways of improving their own processes that we were actually quite amazed about what came out of those partnerships and developed new ways of working. So we, as an organization, we've actually published a whole report on the emergency relief fund, us on some of the work that came out of uh, that fund. And we'll be taking lessons out of that, sharing with other health providers and making sure that others learn from that. I mean, so it sounds like, you know, really taking services, not taking them completely out of the clinic, but bringing them to the community level and finding opportunities at the local level to partner with other sectors, whether that's schools and education or nutrition and food services is something that, you know, has has proven to be really critical, particularly during during the last year or so of the pandemic. I want to shift, though, from the community level up to the global level here and ask you, you know, about some of the upcoming events and discussions and strategies that will be taking shape over the next year or two. You know, UNAIDS has just come out with a new strategy. The U.S. Uh, PEPFAR programs are developing plans for, for their new work phase at the country level uh, as we speak. Um, and the Global Fund is, is currently developing its new strategy and planning for a, a next round of replenishment. And of course, then there's the high-level meeting on AIDS in the beginning of June. And all of this is happening at a time when there are new pediatric formulations of antiretroviral therapies available, and including as generics. So there's a lot of political momentum, there's technical momentum, and yet it's not clear yet that pediatric programs will be prioritized in the next phase of global work. So I just, yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, how optimistic are you about a focus on children and adolescents in this next phase? And what, you know, kind of two to three actions would you want to see the U.S. and global community do more of or, or perhaps start doing to support children and adolescents living with HIV over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, sure. So my first point is you, in your question, you just actually answered that for me. My first point, what we would like to see global communities do, point number one is to prioritize children and adolescents in our HIV response and service delivery. And in this, to think about the so-called hard to reach who are often excluded key populations and here, especially young mothers and their children and children of key populations drug users, sex workers, and so forth. And I mean, on, on this point, I actually would like to uh, quote the work of the Coalition of Children Affected by HIV, who so succinctly put it that this population is at far greater risk of HIV infection, as well as other interrelated physical, social, and economic challenges. They face a double burden of stigma associated with HIV and their status in society. And they are often left out of health and social and economic interventions. There is therefore an urgent need to make sure they remain a priority, not even remain, because I'm not sure that they are as much a priority at the moment as they ought to be, to make sure they are prioritized in the HIV response. So that's number one, children and adolescents, and particularly the vulnerable populations. My second point is around capacity, something that's close to Pat's heart, of course. My second point is capacity development of frontline health workers. I have mentioned this and I cannot mention it enough. The centrality of health providers has often gone unnoticed 
COVID-19 has been a wake-up call for us, and we have woken up realizing how critical the role of health providers is. There is therefore an urgent need to support capacity development of frontline health workers in terms of skills, tools, resources, as well as their own physical and mental well-being. If we expect them to continue playing this critical role in providing uninterrupted access to essential health services for children, adolescents, and young people. The third ask would be around uh, something we've just spoken about now, the financing of community-based systems for joint HIV and sexual and reproductive health, especially for adolescents and COVID-19 programming. We can no longer afford to continue to treat the two separately and thinking funds are being shifted from HIV to COVID and, and vice versa. We need to think about interventions that are joint programming for, for both HIV and uh, COVID-19, including strengthening mechanisms for bringing services to the community, which we've spoken again ad nauseum, that are integrated within national health systems. And situating this programming and interventions within national health systems enables us to reach numbers of people with larger numbers of people with uh, health information than we would have done through our individual programming, individual donor funding, individual interventions here and there. So it's really critical that we try and situate the work that we do within governments. And so that will enable us to reach populations of health information, diagnostics, drug delivery, including access to vaccines, which is a big issue now for the at the moment for the region. And for the community models to be effective, there is need to also avail digital technology, which we talk about, it has been implemented. And where it has been implemented, it's been implemented where it's possible to implement it, where children and young people can have access to network, have access to data. But we need to think beyond that is the vulnerable populations that I've talked about earlier, is those without access to internet and data. How are we reaching those populations? And we need to be able to facilitate service delivery, virtual service delivery where possible, as I said, especially in this so-called hard-to-reach population. And investing in community and building their capacity and that's critical because beyond donor funding, this is critical for sustainability and for promoting self-reliance beyond once donor funding has exited. So that's my third ask. And my last and most important point is we prioritize children and adolescents. We need to prioritize innovations that put young people at the center of designing the services that we are designing for them. They can be, young people can be critical in service delivery, providing peer support to each other. We've seen various models of peer support emerging. And they must also, and when we say engaging young people, we really need to meaningfully engage them and ensure that they're not just there to provide peer support or just as a token, but to ensure that their voices are represented where it matters. And by that, what I mean is platforms where decisions are made about them, for them, and not only at local level, but also at global platforms. So those would be my four asks. So it sounds like prioritizing children and adolescents in national and global HIV programs, yeah. supporting the community workers who care for children and their families, 
Yeah. Scaling up the community models and programs, including the financing and provision of technical service to the national level, and then really ensuring that children and adolescents, that their voices are part of the discussion and that their concerns yeah. and ideas can, can really be factored into planning. Well, Agnes Ronan from Pata, thank you for joining me to discuss community health engagement to support children and families living with HIV AIDS and the frontline health workers who care for them in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic in the Africa region. And good luck to you and your colleagues in the year ahead. Thank you, Katrin. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2021. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.